Jerusalem, according to the biblical account and according to the founding documents of the modern founders of Israel, Jerusalem is not just the capital of the Jewish state, but the eternal capital of the Jewish people. You understand clearly from the scriptures that this city is the place from which the Messiah will rule and reign in the day when the Messiah rules and reigns on earth. Welcome to another episode of A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We are a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus, believe that God is doing something unique among the Jewish people around the world, and want to inform you on matters affecting you in the Christian world today. This is actually number two of a three-part series that we're going to talk about Israel. So the first part, uh, which you can go back and watch, was kind of an overview of Israel. And today we're going to dive specifically into the land of Israel. What is the land? What is the state? And kind of everything involving that. So let's discuss. So the first question, I'll just start there, Ezra. What is the difference between the terminology of the land and the state of Israel? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a deep question. And I want to say, like, at the outset of this podcast, Carly, we are condensing 2,000 pages of history books and maybe two semesters of college coursework on Israel and the Middle East and the peace issues and the conflict into about a half hour of podcasts. So uh, for our listening audience, just appreciate that. And I want to encourage you, go on Google, get the specifics that maybe we're going to cover very briefly today because you should know it. You deserve to be informed. Don't outsource your discernment on these issues. They're important, but we're going to try to cover these at a high level. So, Carly, to respond, uh, what's the difference between the land and the state of Israel? The land of Israel goes back to Genesis. We see it in Genesis 13. We see it in Genesis 17. We see it throughout the Old Testament, and we actually see it reappearing in the book of Acts and even Revelation, this idea of this piece of land bordering the Mediterranean and in the middle of the Middle East that God has given, and it says forever to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who we understand to be the Jewish people as an inheritance. Forever means forever. Uh, If we read the Bible literally, which I encourage us to do, unless it's, there's a specific reason not to, but uh, the land of Israel refers to that, uh, that uh, land inheritance given to the Jewish people. Now, the state of Israel refers to the modern state of Israel, which is a political state, meaning not a theocracy and not an idea. It's actually a nation recognized by the United Nations um, with some very specific land borders, some of which are in dispute. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But land of Israel is this biblical idea of the homeland of the Jewish people. State of Israel is the idea of a political state also called the Jewish state by its founders and by its current leader, Bibi Netanyahu. And there is some overlap, of course. Now, the modern boundaries of the state of Israel coincide closely with the ancient boundaries of the land of Canaan, and which became the land of Israel. Um, but actually, the biblical promise for what will be the future boundaries of the land of Israel that we see in Ezekiel, I'd encourage you to look on a map uh, or even Google future boundaries of Israel. Uh, in this day to come when we believe Jesus, Yeshua, uh, will be ruling and reigning on earth from Israel. The boundaries of that land at that time extend into what we know as Iraq and Iran, into Syria, way down into the Saudi Peninsula, into Egypt. Very interesting. But the boundaries of the land that the 12 tribes of Israel occupied thousands of years ago, or received from the Lord, I should say, coincide similarly to what we understand to be the current political boundaries of the state of Israel. So you mentioned, you know, there's some conflict over certain areas. 
one of the areas we hear a lot about is the West Bank. What is that? And, you know, what's the conflict there? Right. And I want to point out here, uh, before we talk about the West Bank, there's this other area called Gaza, right? These are kind of the two areas that we hear a lot about amidst others. But the two that we hear all over the news are Gaza or the Gaza Strip. And then we hear about the West Bank. So the Gaza Strip was land that in 2005 was given over to the Palestinian Authority called the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, which has sort of gone quiet. Now we know it as the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas, but formerly the Palestinian Liberation organization demanded that land as uh, kind of this historically the property of the Palestinian people. And so in a land for peace deal, shortly before he went into a coma, Ariel Sharon gave the Gaza Strip over completely under Palestinian control. And Israelis, uh, thousands of Orthodox Jews were actually uh, because the land had to be given over and would become unsafe for Jewish people, were actually asked to leave and in some cases forcibly removed from their homes. That land was given over. And we understand that uh, in the last 15 years now or so since the land became completely under the authority of Palestinian Authority and Israelis cannot enter uh, and the IDF cannot enter has really become, I'm sorry to say, an economically depressed hotbed for terrorism. So uh, in my humble opinion, that was a failed experiment in land for peace negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, but I'm getting off track. Anyway, hundreds of thousands of uh, Palestinians live in the Gaza Strip. And what's interesting is when God's commanding Joshua and the armies of Israel uh, back in the biblical accounts, to kind of take the land, right? He says, I'm with you, go take these cities. They don't go to the land of the Philistines. They leave it alone. And the land of the Philistines is actually now where the Gaza Strip is located, believe it or not. And God says, because you didn't do this, these people will be a thorn in your side forever, from generation to generation. And it's very interesting to me that the land that Israel didn't conquer at that time, which is now the Gaza Strip and the West Bank that we're going to talk about in a minute, God says, because you didn't do what I asked you to do, this is going to be a thorn in your side, an annoyance, a hindrance to you in every generation. And we see that playing out today, not to get too far off course for the topic of this podcast episode. But so that's the Gaza Strip. The West Bank is the much larger. And if you look at a map, it's really kind of like a butterfly on its side, the butterfly shaped piece of land running the majority of the length of the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, um, and even down through part of the Dead Sea. This is land that originally was under Jordanian control when Israel became a state, and then was won in a military victory during the Six-Day War or the War of 1967, where Israel regained control of Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years, that it was under Jewish control. This land was... Um, conquered, if we will, or came under the military control of the Israeli Defense Force in 1967 and has been kept that way ever since, but is home to 2.7 million Palestinian or Arab peoples. And as such, it wasn't adopted in the same way as the rest of the state of Israel is recognized. So it's under military control and being defended militarily by the Israeli Defense Force in cooperation in some cases with the Palestinian Authority. Secondarily, Israel provides the infrastructure to this area 
but it's not considered, it's not been annexed to become like the rest of what we can call mainland Israel. So that's the West Bank. And even the term, Carly, West Bank is a very political term because West, well, what's West? This is on the east side of the state of Israel. So why is it called the West Bank? West Bank means the West Banks of the Jordan River. And the implication there in that very political term that most of the world uses is that this is really just the West Banks of land that was originally Jordan. Jordan River belongs to Jordan. This is the West Banks of it. It's just like the East Banks are in Jordan and the city of Amman, Jordan's capital, the West Banks, uh, where these 2.7 million Palestinians live, just the West Banks of the Jordan River. And you take Israel out of the equation and using the term West Bank. In Hebrew, interestingly, the term West Bank isn't used. The term for the land we know as the West Bank is called Shtachim, which means territories. Shatach in Hebrew is just a territory. It's a very general term. So Israelis, Hebrew speakers, would refer to the West Bank as not Palestine, not the West Bank of the Jordan River, but the territories, meaning the territories under Israeli control that were never annexed into the main state. And it remains that way, this hotly contested area, to this day. Got it. That's a good clarification. So another thing that we see on TV often, if we're seeing anything about Israel, is this concrete wall with different military watchtowers. What is that and why is it there? Right. Some people call it the wall. Some people call it the barrier. Um, some people call it the checkpoint. There's actually a ministry called Christ at the Checkpoint, which exists to kind of uh, try to engage Christians around this idea of tremendous injustice being done to the Palestinian people by being walled in. The, uh, the wall, as we know it, actually doesn't enclose the entire West Bank. It was built during the Second Intifada. And Intifada just means an uprising in the name of Islam, kind of, an uprising of the Palestinian people. Uh, there's been about three or so Intifadas, but the second one happened right at the end of the Clinton administration in September of 2000, uh, really through most of 2000. And unfortunately, between 2000 and 2003, there were 70 three bombings in the main part of Israel carried out by Palestinian terrorists who were protesting um, protesting what they felt were the injustices committed by the state of Israel against the Palestinian people. And the way that they were protesting was by blowing themselves and objects and people up and taking innocent human life uh, as a demonstration. And so because of those, uh, the, the number of those bombings uh, increased so rapidly during those years, during the Intifada, Israel made the difficult decision to actually enclose the cities or the villages where they uh, had identified these terrorist activities were being planned and, and being executed from. So it's not the entire West Bank that was enclosed. It's uh, several cities in Israel that the intelligence confirmed was the site of where these terrorist things were being planned and carried out from. And in order to protect the millions of people, Jewish and Arab alike, and the Palestinian people living in the rest of this land, they created what's called the Israeli security barrier, also known politically as the wall or the fence around these uh, terrorist hotbeds. Now, I do want to say, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, unfortunately, about 25,000 Palestinian people the vast majority of whom were innocent of terrorism or bloodshed ended up enclosed in these areas and it is to this day somewhat difficult to pass through those barriers. So this is what we'll call a really unfortunate, uh, in some cases tragic, but I'll say necessary response. I'll agree with the Israeli government on that one, necessary response to the destruction 
uh, of human life in the name of Palestinian terrorism. So that's what we mean by the wall uh, or the security barrier that remains all over the news to this day. So obviously Israel is always in the news, which we've talked about. It's kind of crazy because it's, you know, so very small. The size of New Jersey, right? Yeah. But a couple of years ago, um, something made the news that I want you to explain why it was newsworthy. So I'll just say a certain technology company, when they put out their latest operating system. Uh-huh. We won't say which one, but it's a fruit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, got it. Good. You know, when, when you turn your phone on for the first time, you have to choose... Uh, you know, the city and the country, and uh, they listed Jerusalem, but then they listed no country with it. So it's, you know, it's not like, you know, in the United States, it would say Arizona and then the United States, but that, that's not, they just said Jerusalem and, you know, no country associated with it. So why is that newsworthy? Right. Politically, most of the world wants to think of Jerusalem as a divided capital. There's West Jerusalem, which is under Jewish control, and then there's East Jerusalem, which is Arab and which really should be part of the future state of Palestine. It's just not the case. The entirety of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, was one in the military activities of the Israeli Defense Force in response to a multinational offensive against them during the Six-Day War in 1967, and it's been maintained that way ever since. So if uh, Israel has gained legitimate military control over this area, why so much dispute? Uh, this in and of itself, the city of Jerusalem and the history and the boundaries and the politics and the theology could be uh, a graduate degree. But real briefly, the main issue boils down, at least historically and theologically, to this, that Jerusalem, according to the biblical account and according to the founding documents of the modern founders of Israel and the modern state of Israel, Jerusalem is, quote unquote, not just, well, not just the capital of the Jewish state, but, quote unquote, the eternal capital of the Jewish people. That's the very intentional language that's used, that this city has been given by God to the Jewish people as the eternal capital. And also, whether you believe in Jesus or, or you don't, but you have a messianic hope as a Jewish person, you understand clearly from the scriptures that this city is the place from which the Messiah will rule and reign in the day when the Messiah rules and reigns on earth. Of course, uh, here at A Jew and a Gentile Discuss, we believe very clearly and strongly that that Messiah is Jesus and that he's not coming for the first time, he's coming again. But we do believe he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Great. So what does the other side of the issue believe? Well, the other side of the issue is the millions of people in the Arab world who, who are Muslim, many of whom are devout, committed uh, Muslims, and Jerusalem, uh, specifically the Temple Mount, is the foundation for the Al-Aqsa Mosque which is the third holiest site in all of Islam. So we understand Mecca, we understand Medina, these are in Saudi Arabia. People make the, the Hajj, they make this pilgrimage to these sites, just like Jewish people make a pilgrimage, like we were commanded to make a pilgrimage three times a year when the temple was standing to Jerusalem on the Jewish holidays. More about that on our Jewish holidays episodes. Uh, so stay tuned there, or take a listen. But the Muslim people recognize the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the southern corner of the Temple Mount as the third holiest site in all of Islam. And so that can never be given up, of course, to Jewish people. This would be anathema. This would be uh, a great disaster. And actually, the, the term Nakba in Arabic, and Mahmoud Abbas uses this term referring to June 7th, 1967, when Israel regained control of Jerusalem. Nakba means the great catastrophe. 
That's how that day is referred to in the Muslim world. Why is it a great catastrophe? Because the third holiest site in all of Islam came under Jewish control. And so to this day, to wrap up this long answer to your short question, the city of Jerusalem remains, in my opinion, and you don't have to watch the news too many weeks before you'd probably agree with this, the most hotly contested couple miles of real estate on the face of the earth. It's the center, and for Christianity as well, right? Christians believe Jesus is coming back to the Mount of Olives, also within the city limits of Jerusalem. We believe that too. We believe he's going to march down as the conquering king and rule from the Temple Mount and you know rule the nations. But Jews and Christians alike, as well as Muslims, hold Jerusalem in not just high esteem, but holy regard holy esteem. And that's why it's so hotly contested. And that's why companies like the one we're talking about that we won't mention aren't going to take a side. They're not going to take a side. The easiest thing is to just leave it alone and say Jerusalem is this standalone entity. Uh, but really, again, the most hotly contested piece of real estate on the face of the earth to this day. So obviously, as a Jewish believer, your perspective is pro-Israel, you know, pro-Israel homeland. What about the Palestinian people and their right to the land? It's a great question. You know, I believe, as you said, and it's not going to be a surprise to our audience, as a Jewish believer, as a Jewish man, I absolutely believe, according to the scriptures, not just according to faith traditions I've been taught, as I read the scriptures, I absolutely believe that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the Jewish people, that Israel is forever the land God has promised to our descendants. Not because of us, but because he's a promise keeper. He's faithful to his promises in spite of my people, the Jewish people's disobedience generation after generation. Why? I can't exactly say. I can venture you know, some understanding from the scriptures, but I believe that and that the land of Israel is been given as an eternal homeland of the Jewish people as it exists in the founding documents of the state of Israel this day and age. That being said, I also understand that there's a couple million people who call themselves the Palestinian people, Arab, not Jewish people, living within the land that's controlled militarily and supported infrastructurally by the government of Israel who are not recognized as Israeli citizens for political reasons, in some part for theological reasons, because of military issues. It's very complicated. And I think what's important, Carly, is standing with Israel does not mean, does not mean vilifying Arab peoples, vilifying or bad-mouthing Palestinian peoples. Um, do I believe the walls around certain parts of the West Bank are necessary? Yeah, because I care about human life, Jewish and Arab alike or otherwise. But I also understand that the vast majority of the Palestinian people find themselves in a very difficult situation as feeling to some degree in no man's land. They're there either because they were sent there in the last century by Jordan, by Syria, by Lebanon around them, or because really legitimately their family has lived in that land for generations and generations. So it's this weird tension of saying, yes, this is historically and eternally the homeland of the Jewish people, and there's these non-Jewish people living in the land, and what's the responsibility of the Jewish people to those non-Jewish people? It's very complicated. I could try to unpack it. Many of our listeners will agree with some of what I say and disagree. Uh, when I'm sitting with uh, Jewish believer friends of mine uh, at the coffee shop in Jerusalem, we agree sometimes with each other, and we like loudly disagree with each other on this issue. Uh, uh, all that to say it's complicated and God cares about the land of Israel and God cares about Arab people and God wants Muslim people 
Arab, Persian, whatever. He wants them to have a transformative encounter with himself through Jesus. I think that's what we have to remember. Uh, it would be inaccurate for us to come in here, Carly, in like a cavalier way and say, this is easy and we stand with Israel and that means Israel does no wrong and that's the way it is. Like I would stop listening to this podcast if that's what we said because uh, it's just not the case. So it's that tension of uh, the right of Jewish people to the land as an inheritance and uh, people who God cares about and we need to care about living within its borders. So often when we hear people talk about, you know, how to solve this issue, you hear the, the phrases one state and two state solution. I know asking you to explain those is like, you know, unpack. Yeah, there's another semester. There's another. Yeah. So real, real briefly, and I encourage you, like, look this up and look at at least two different sources because there's so many politics involved. But at a basic level, Solution, first of all, implies there's a problem. What's the problem? How do, how do Jewish people and Palestinians live together without being in this uh, ongoing conflict of whose land is it anyway? So the one state solution says, annex the West Bank, bring the 2.7 million Arab people and their land into the um, boundaries and rights as full citizens of the rest of the land of Israel. It sounds great, right? Like, let's all just get along. Bring the 2.7 million people in. Israel's providing the infrastructure anyway. Let's all just get along and it'll be one happy country. Here's the problem. Israel is, by its founding documents, the Jewish homeland. Uh, and as it is, 25% of the population of Israel is not Jewish. If you bring in 2.7 million non-Jewish people into the citizen voting population, you actually almost tip that so the majority of the people inhabiting the Jewish homeland are not Jewish, who are not going to vote for Jewish things. And in a democracy, the majority wins. So this is, I mean, pretty bluntly, this is the big problem is can you have a Jewish homeland where the majority of people are not Jewish? And this is the big dilemma. I think the main reason why a one-state solution while it might make more political sense and sound happier to everybody, uh, for the Israeli government at present, it's just not an option. Um, you can't have a Jewish state with a majority of non-Jewish people uh, and the concerns surrounding that. The two-state solution is, I guess, the other alternative at a high level, and that means Israel remains Israel, but the West Bank and Gaza and other little segments of Israel that aren't part of the main part of Israel where Palestinians live who are not Israeli citizens actually become the country of Palestine. And that's what uh, Mahmoud Abbas is pushing for. And while refusing to engage in any direct dialogue, it's a historical fact, with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, refusing to talk to him, is, is petitioning the UN for uh, the state of Palestine. And that means... Uh, and a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Israelis, believe it or not, are in support of this. The idea that, okay, the West Bank becomes another state, let the Palestinians deal with their own government, let them deal with their own infrastructure, let them deal with their own issues of uh, crime, let them deal with their own terrorism. It's their own country, and we just agree to exist side by side. Here's the problem. The Palestinian Authority is inherently hostile towards the idea of a Jewish homeland for Jewish people. So if a two-state solution goes through, immediately you have Israel bordered by a hostile, predominantly Muslim-controlled, although there's many, many Palestinian Christians, but predominantly Muslim-controlled uh, governmental entity backed by the rest of the Arab world that says, we don't agree that the Jewish state should exist. So instead of having a couple hostile borders like Syria and Lebanon, 
Now Israel all of a sudden has the majority of its border, a hostile country that says it should be wiped off the face of the earth. It just doesn't work. Israel can't allow it in the name of national security. It can't allow it, not just for the Jewish citizens, but for all Israelis, Arab and Jewish alike. And Netanyahu said, Carly, that if the two-state solution goes through, there's a section just south of Haifa where the entire width of the state of Israel at that point between the Mediterranean Sea and what would become a hostile republic committed to its destruction is the width of the island of Manhattan, eight miles across. It's, it's not militarily acceptable to most of the Israeli people, certainly to the Israeli government. So one state solution, two state solution, neither one uh, is, uh, it seems acceptable uh, for Israel or on the world stage right now. And that's why this is so complicated. So there's any number of permutations. You know, every American president uh, tries to come up with the, the ultimate peace plan or the perfect solution. Good luck. So another term that we hear a lot of is the land promise. So what, what is the land promise and why is there a land dispute? Right. So the land promise is what we were talking about earlier. This idea in Genesis 13, Genesis 17, that God has given the land of Israel forever to the Jewish people as an everlasting inheritance. Not, again, not because of us, because he made the promise. That's the land promise. The promise is from God. That's the idea. Why is there so much dispute? Well, first of all, the majority of the world does not believe that the Bible is actually God's words to humankind. Uh, they believe it's a historical book about the Jewish people and then the first followers of Jesus in the New Testament, and that it has very little bearing other than a historical reference on things today. So if you don't believe that A, God exists, that B, he's chosen the Jewish people to have a special calling to be a blessing to the families of the earth, and C, that he's chosen the land of Israel to be their homeland, then the land promise isn't worth the paper it's written on, as far as you're concerned in your own political thinking. Um, and that's why there's so much dispute. It ultimately is an idea that has theological implications that most of the world says are irrelevant or foolish. Got it. Okay. So before we continue, kind of what we're going to talk about next is, is the modern state of Israel the fulfillment of Bible prophecy? Um, and I'm sure Ezra will give a good Jewish answer of yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we talk about that, I want to talk about how you can partner with us. Um, you know, if you if you love coffee, which we say pretty much on every episode that Ezra loves, and you want to support Israel and the Jewish people, we have a great opportunity for you, which is that we have sourced uh, coffee from Ethiopia, which is one of the countries we go to uh, and share the gospel there. We minister there, we bring them medical care, we bring them spiritual care, we tell them about Jesus, their Messiah, and so we've sourced coffee from there. And if you partner with us on a monthly basis, you can receive this coffee. This is a way that you can help them know that you're doing good while also consuming one cup, two cup, three cups of coffee, or however much you drink per day. In general, we'd love for you to partner with us to learn more about what God's doing around the world and be part of that. You can do that at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. So back to the question, is the modern state of Israel the fulfillment of Bible prophecy about the people inheriting the land of Israel? Yeah. Uh, as you said, you gave away my answer, Carly. Yes and no. Uh, what do we mean by yes? I do believe, you know, Isaiah 66, first of all, and I'd encourage you to look at it. Uh, if you're driving, don't look at it now. Look at it at the stoplight. Or if you're listening at home, look at it with us. Isaiah 66, verse 8. Isaiah was seeing a day when the Jewish people, there would be this miraculous 
catapulting of the Jewish people back into their destiny, despite us being scattered for our disobedience to the ends of the earth. And there's a lot going on in that chapter and the chapters surrounding it. But specifically, Isaiah 66 verse 8 says, can a nation be born in a day? And some translations even say, who has ever heard of such a thing? In essence, when in history or on the face of the earth has a nation that didn't exist or didn't exist for a period of time snapped back into being? This isn't how it works. There's kingdoms and there's transitions of kingdoms and there's you know po growing populations and military conquests. But the question is, can a nation be born in a day? And yet, in 1947 and 1948, with the UN vote for the partition of British Palestine to name a Jewish homeland after the Holocaust, a nation was actually born in a day. It's never happened like this in world history. It happened with the state of Israel. So in that sense, very much, I do believe, Carly, that the rebirth of the modern state of Israel, like we see in Isaiah 66, and then the retaking of Jerusalem back into Jewish hands in the Six-Day War in 1967, were direct fulfillments of Bible prophecy. You know, we know the verses that say, Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles. It means Jerusalem shall be controlled and inhabited by the nations. Gentiles just means people who aren't Jewish until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And it's this idea which I, I, I agree with as I read the scriptures and as I consider uh, recent 20th century history, the idea that something fundamentally shifted in the times and seasons we live in on June 7th, 1967, a week before the Jewish holiday of, of Shavuot, when Jewish soldiers marched back in to Jerusalem and reestablished control over the city and the Temple Mount. This idea that change in the times and seasons on God's calendar happened, which brings us ever closer to what we understand to be the last days, the return of Jesus. So it's exciting. In that sense, yes, I believe the modern state of Israel and Israel um, controlling Jerusalem again after 2,000 years expelled from it and all the kings and kingdoms and empires that controlled the land and the birth of Islam having so much to do with Jerusalem. I do believe that uh, these things are a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. That being said, Israel... The modern state of Israel is a democracy, it's a political entity, it's a political physical state, it is not a theocracy, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is not ruling yet on the throne in Jerusalem, the uh, leaders in the Israeli Knesset are fallible, sinful men and women, just like you and I, who need God and who are lost apart from him, and so in that sense, you know, there's the already and there's the not yet, like the state of Israel absolutely is a fulfillment, but we have a long ways to go. Everything we believe will be fulfilled in terms of Israel walking in her true identity when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, when, according to Zechariah 14, there's this national recognition, looking on the one whom we have pierced and mourning for him as one mourns for an only son. Then we will be able to say with full confidence, when Jesus Yeshua is ruling and reigning from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, ruling the nations of the earth, and the Jewish people recognize his Messiahship, then we can talk about a fulfillment, to use the word literally. So we see a filling, but not a fulfillment of Bible prophecy as it relates to the modern state. Got it. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the land dispute and kind of the historical. Let's move to the modern state of Israel. And you just touched on a couple things, you know, 1948 and then 1967, the Six-Day War. Anything else you want to touch on the history, but also how is the state of Israel set up? Like, what does it mean? You know, what doesn't it mean? 
Right. It, there's so much we could talk about. Even, you know, our listeners have probably heard the term the Golan Heights. It's this beautiful area kind of on the slopes of Mount Hermon on the very corner of Israel, uh, bordered on one side by Lebanon, which has missiles pointed at Israel from the slopes of the, the foothills near Mount Hermon, pointed down at the vineyards and the farms of Israel. And then Syria on the other side, which has, as we know, its own issues right now and which is not friendly toward the state of Israel either. But uh, tucked into the corner of that tri-country border is the Golan Heights. And Israel very much considers the Golan Heights part of the modern state of Israel, uh, won by military conquest in the 60s and the 70s. But if you look at some maps, you'll see this big dotted line after the Sea of Galilee saying contested territory. So it's so complicated. And depending on which news source you listen to and which Google site you go to and whose history you read, you're going to get different answers. Um, but I encourage everybody, don't just don't outsource your discernment, as we say, and don't just take one news source at its word. Do your own research. Research the history, the history, 20th century history of the birth and the expansion of the state of Israel will tell you a lot. Don't just listen to current politics and newscasters on that. Um, but in terms of how the state of Israel is set up, also not usual, and it's a little complicated, but we'll give some highlights. So the state of Israel uh, was officially inaugurated in May of 1948. David Ben-Gurion, some of us have seen the pictures. I'd encourage you look at that in this little building in Israel, which is now sort of run down but being refurbed. Uh, the state of Israel is inaugurated, and Israel actually, Carly, doesn't have a constitution. It has a proclamation of independence from 1948, which establishes it as the Jewish state and the Jewish homeland and determines who was allowed to come back to Israel as a Jewish person, quote unquote, returning home. But it doesn't have a constitution. Well, why would a democracy in the Middle East not have a constitution? Doesn't every democracy have a constitution? It's complicated. And the reason is because Israel exists in this tension, a constitution versus Jewish rabbinic law. So as the Jewish state, Israel is subject to the rabbinic authorities that control what it means to be a Jewish person, how do we live a Jewish life, but at the same time, it's not a theocracy, and Israel has freedom of religion. There's Arabs who live there, there's Druze, there's uh, Bedouins who have their own kind of historic faith and religious systems. So Israel is stuck between having a constitution, which would go against religious law, and also being set up as a Jewish homeland with religious laws. And for that reason, they still have not gotten past a proclamation of independence since 1948. So it's tricky, but super important for our audience to understand Israel is not a theocracy. It is not controlled ultimately by the rabbis. They have a lot of authority over Jewish life, but they don't have authority over the Jewish state. The Jewish state is controlled by the Knesset. Uh, which operates as a form of a democracy. Got it. So in the third episode of this series, we talk a lot about who lives in Israel and, you know, are they all Jewish and all of that. So I'll save that for then. Listen to that episode. Uh, but one question I wanted to specifically ask is, can you, you just mentioned this a little bit before about Jewish people becoming a citizen of the state of Israel. Can a Jewish person become a citizen of the state of Israel? How does that work? It's a great question. So, um, partly in response to the Holocaust, uh, the laws of who could become a citizen of Israel came about. What do I mean by that? Hitler determined that anybody in the 30s and 40s, he determined that anybody with a Jewish parent or a Jewish grandparent was eligible to be exterminated under what he thought would be the ultimate solution of wiping the Jewish race off the face of the earth. And he got halfway there. Six million plus were killed during the Holocaust, as we know. Um, praise the Lord, he preserved a remnant for us. 
and that season ended. But all that to say, Israel, for that reason, said, if you can be, if you can die for being a Jew according to that definition, then we need to welcome those people for safety and security into the Jewish homeland for the same reasons. So worldwide, the number of people who are considered rabbinically Jewish, meaning their mother's Jewish, more on that in the next episode, is about 14.6 million or so. But the number of people who are eligible to immigrate to the state of Israel because they have a Jewish parent or grandparent, even if the rabbis don't consider that person Jewish, is over 23 million, believe it or not. Israel's population right now is six point something million Jewish people out of nine million total citizens. So all that to say, about two thirds of or more, uh, three quarters of the worldwide Jewish population who's eligible to live in Israel doesn't currently live in Israel. So you have 23 million people uh, who are eligible to live there. But there's an asterisk. You can have kind of any background. You can be Buddhist. You can be atheist. Uh, you can live in Russia. You can live in America. You can live in South Africa. You can live wherever you're going to live and you're eligible to return. The asterisk is this. Quite unfortunately, in the last few years, the Supreme Court has ruled in Israel that somebody openly professing faith as Jesus negates their eligibility to immigrate to Israel. Now, as a Jewish believer, I say, what on earth is this? Uh, how can that be? I'm still Jewish. Unfortunately, because Israel does have that rabbinic influence, which affects things even up to the Supreme Court, they determined that a Jewish believer who's saying, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and I believe that you should believe that too, because it's the truth, is actively working, according to the Supreme Court's definition, to convert Jewish people away from their Jewish faith. So for me as a Jewish believer, if I seek to immigrate to Israel and they say, do you believe in Jesus and do you tell other people about that? And I say yes, because of course I would say yes, their determination is that because of my belief in Jesus, because you quote unquote can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus, according to most modern Jewish thought, I have surrendered my Jewish identity and my connection to my parents' and grandparents' Jewish identity and have actually converted to another religion, which makes me ineligible to live in the state of Israel. And even more so, even if on behalf of my parent or grandparent I'm eligible, my proclamation to other Jewish people that I believe Jesus is their Messiah means that I'm actively encouraging Jewish people to also convert away from their Jewish faith and become something else, which makes me antithetical to the purpose uh, for which the Jewish homeland was established. So you can see on the one hand, right, as believers were going, that's ridiculous, that's terrible, that's diabolical. But if I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I actually believe Jesus is a threat to Jewish identity, you can see how they got there. So Jewish believers in Jesus are presently one of the only groups of people who otherwise would be eligible to return out of these 23 and a half million people, but who are individually excluded from doing so if it reaches the Israeli Supreme Court. It's really unfortunate. This is one of the times when we would say standing with Israel doesn't mean standing with all their decisions. And I think it's going to take kind of uh, a big part of the Christian community, maybe you listening today, say that's not right. Well, write to your congressman. If you're in touch with a Knesset member or another uh, group that's working in Israel, write to them and say, I just want you to know I don't support Jewish believers in Jesus being excluded from return to the Jewish homeland. We trust that the Lord's going to work this out over time. But right now, unfortunately, that's the situation. Thanks for explaining that. I think that's something that most people don't understand or even know that, you know, a Jewish person has a right to going back to Israel.
if you were listening to this podcast, it probably feels a little bit like a fire hose, just like so much information. Uh, but like you mentioned, uh, there's this really part of a three-part series, one where we go through the terminology, this one we go through the land, and then the third one we get more into the people. So uh, if you're interested, listen to the rest of them so you have you know, a, a broader understanding. And we'll probably go into more details of these in future podcasts, especially as people ask more questions. So um, thanks again for listening to this one. Uh, we are going to answer one of your questions in just a minute. But before we do that, I just wanted to remind you that you can partner with us uh, on a monthly basis if you want to support what we're doing on the podcast and also the ministry that we're doing to the Jewish people around the world. Um, and in exchange, get some great Ethiopian coffee uh, so that you can drink the coffee from where we're ministering and also know that you're helping those people as well. So you can get more information about that at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. So one question we got uh, from one of our listeners that has to do with Israel is that many Christians, you know, feel like they've been told they have to go to Israel. The question is, do I really have to go to Israel and why should I go to Israel? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, the Jewish people were commanded and still are commanded, except the problem is there's no temple uh, to go worship in, in Jerusalem. Uh, it was destroyed in 70 AD, but commanded to go three times a year to Jerusalem from wherever we were, at least the head of household. Uh, the man was commanded, go present yourself before the Lord in Jerusalem. You know, and we know the Muslims, as we said, have their Hajj. You go to Mecca, you go to Medina. If you can during your life, you need to go there once. You maybe even go to Jerusalem, uh, though it's difficult for many Muslim people to do that from the Arab world for many reasons. But should Christians go to Israel? It's not the same idea as like this pilgrimage or Hajj where if you can, you really need to. But I would say, Carly, you know, even as a Jewish believer in Jesus, the first time I went to the land of Israel in 2006, I immediately was struck by the reality that, wow, this is where my people live for thousands of years. In addition to that, this is where Jesus lived and ministered. Like this is his stomping grounds. Literally, this is these cities are where he went from A to B and these things happen and where he's going to come back to at a time in the future. So being where Jesus was, walking where Jesus walked, super cool. Also, just being in the land, seeing the sights, understanding the distances between places, seeing the ruins uh, in Jerusalem, other uh, biblical cities. It really makes your experience reading the Bible go from 2D to 3D. Um, which is important. I found it, you know, now I don't just have to imagine what something looked like. I can close my eyes. And as I'm thinking about Jesus on the, you know, doing the Sermon on the Mount, like I can see the slopes of the Sea of Galilee in my mind because they're still there. You can go visit them. So that's awesome. And then thirdly, I think going to Israel, we've talked a lot about the idea of standing with Israel, but we don't want people to do that in ignorance. And one of the best ways you can get over the, the being in a place of ignorance or even misunderstanding is to go see it for yourself. Understand the complexities of what this security barrier means between Israel and some parts of the West Bank. Understand who the Jewish people are, who the Bedouin people are, who the Palestinian people are. Go and experience it for yourself. I really believe God will speak to you if you can. Do you have to? No. If you can and you get the chance, go for it. And uh, frankly, ignore the news that says it's sand dunes and tanks. That's just not true. It's a beautiful place. I've never felt safer on earth than I felt walking around in Israel, even at 1 a.m. So go for it. Yeah, I know. As a Christian, I've never been either, but it's definitely something on my bucket list. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening 
to this episode today. If you want to hear more episodes, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you leave us a review, share this podcast with someone you know. You can follow us on social media. And if there's anything you want to discuss or have us answer, you can submit questions on our website at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week for another episode. Hey, if you're looking to get into the holiday spirit, tune in to watch Carly and I blind taste test different foods from Christmas and Hanukkah. See who can determine which food belongs to which holiday. Watch online at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. Merry Christmas and happy Hanukkah. The show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.